welcome to the Commit Podcast. My name is Enda Magnolti. This week we've got a world-class performer speaking to you about his lessons, his experiences, his stories in the performance world. His name is Podrick Moyles. He's danced over 5,500 times at the highest level in world performance. He's going to talk to you about his experiences. He's going to inspire you about the simple things that he does on an ongoing basis to enable sustainable performance. Podrick Moyles, you're incredibly welcome. Thanks very much, Enda. Thanks for having me. Podrick, we're pretty interested and excited to listen to you about peak performance. You've performed over 5,500 times at the highest level in terms of performance arts. Can you give us an insight to the keys to peak performance? Um, well, how do you give insight into the keys of peak performance? For me, I think first and foremost, Enda, for, for true peak performance, there has to be passion. And um, I think anybody who, who is out there that is uh, performing at the highest level, the core of their performance is passion. Um, of course, mindset plays a major role in peak performance. And for me, peak performance in general is being in that state of flow. Um, where everything just seems to come together. And it's not that it comes together for no reason. It comes together because you've prepared for it to come together for the right moment, the right time. And for me, that is peak performance. Going out there with, with confidence, with a, a sense of fun, where the, the pressure that's on you is pressure that you want to have on you. How did you get the hunger, Parik, to continue to perform at that level, whether it was dancing in front of Michelle and Barack Obama, whether it's dancing in front of the Queen Mother, or whether it's after the 3,000 performances or 4,000, how do you maintain the hunger to continue to improve? I wanted to learn. I wanted to be better than I was. And our, our motto is every night is opening night and every night is a new opportunity to improve. Can I dissect that, Patrick? What does that exactly does that mean? Every night is opening night. Can you explain to our listeners? Well, it's our culture. It's our motto. It's um, it's what has kept that show running. And to me, probably the best condition it's ever been is today. Um, we have a new audience in front of us every single night. And in some cases, some of those audience members might be seeing it for, let's say, the 22nd time or the 40th time. But tonight better be the best they've ever seen it. and it's about exceeding their expectations. And if uh, an audience member is watching it for the first time tonight, we want to make sure that we exceed their expectations so that they want to come back again tomorrow. Padraig, in terms of peak performance, can we get onto the bonnet of that a little bit? So what are the key aspects of your preparation? And you alluded to that earlier on. Can we go into that in a bit of detail? Because I think very often when somebody witnesses a performer like you on stage, they think that they must eat well and do some training and do some preparation. But very often there's a gap in understanding about how you create peak performance with that level of longevity. Well, um, I suppose the, the important thing for me uh, was to realize that I was doing rituals and not superstitions. Um, I went through a, a, a number of rituals every single night, every single day, to make sure that I was performing to the best of my ability. Um, from visualization, to as you mentioned, eating right, to being in the gym, um, to my preparation in terms of my physical exercise prior to going on. But to me, the most important part of my performance was my visualization prior to going on. 
You mentioned to me many times, Podrick, about vividly sitting in the corner of the theatre, visualising your first number, mentally rehearsing how the last number was going to go, or the 11 o'clock number. Can you speak us through the detail behind your visualisation? When you did it, where it was, how you did it, and what was almost the little coaching points you used for yourself for that visualisation? Um, well, yeah, I suppose uh, to put it in, in chronological order, uh, we would get our 30-minute our call. Um, and at that time, I'd begin to get into my costume. 15-minute um, call, I'd be in costume. I'd go side stage. I'd go into a dark corner. And um, I'd begin to, uh, I, I suppose, in some ways, talk to myself. But I'd have my eyes closed in that corner. And I would literally see my entrance. I would see the audience in front of me. Um, I would see the dancers beside me and behind me. Um, I would see how I'm influencing them. I would see how I'm influencing the audience. Um, I, I would see the smile on my face. I would see my arms. I would see my legs being crossed, my, my clicks being high over my head. Um, all the way up to the audience reaction, to them standing, to the, I could hear them in my head. Um, and that never got old, Enda. That never got old because every time I would go into that phase of my preparation, I would almost have a new goal for my visualization. I would have a new goal for when the audience were going to stand. I'd have a new goal for when they, what they were going to sound like. I would have a new goal for how I was going to influence the team around me. And sure, there were days where that was really tough. And on those days, I found myself gravitating towards those who were in extremely good form that day. So I could draw on their energy. And when I was feeling amazing, I used to find myself saying, well, it's now a time where I need to impact the team around me. Because at the end of the day, Enda, although I could go out there and be the best that I could be, it was vitally important that everyone around me was the best that they could be. Because by them being their best, I looked even better. And that was vitally important to me. And I like the way you're now moving towards the performance of the team and the preparation of the team. But if it's okay, Patrick, can I just delve a little deeper into the visualization and you spoke emphatically about that the research is very clear about visualization that it should be emotive that it should be vivid and it should be multi-sensory and what's interesting there you're referring to what you hear in your own ears what you see and what you feel so just talk us through just how emotive your visualization is how multi-sensory it is and how realistic does it feel even though it's not happening in reality um, it's hard to tell me that it's not happening in reality. Um, I can smell, the, I, even as I do it now, and uh, I can smell the tiger bomb that I would put on my legs. Um, I can smell my costumes. Um, I, can, I, I would literally, even though I hadn't seen the audience yet, I, I could see the people's faces. I could tell you the color of their hairs. I could tell you how many people were wearing glasses in the audience. It was that vivid to me. Now, that mightn't have been the way it ended up when I went out there, mm -hmm. but that didn't matter. I, I could see exactly what, it was, what was going on on the stage. Um, I, I could even see what the stage manager was doing off the stage in terms of how she was preparing the people to go on for the second half of the number or whatever the case might be on a number by number basis. I wish that our listeners could see you today at because you look fresh, you look fit, you look lean, you look incredibly athletic. And over the last 10 years since I've got to know you, you always look really energized. 
Even after that amount of performances, even after all those flights, after all those bus journeys across China or across South Africa, you still look very, very energized, fit and athletic. How do you maintain that, Patrick? Because a lot of our clients would say to us, I'm so busy traveling or I'm so busy training or I'm so busy working that I can't stay fit. I can't stay looking young. I can't stay energized. What would your answer be? I don't want to have an excuse. Uh, so... For me, I, you know, me not going to the gym when I'm traveling is an excuse. Um, I, like, I can put my runners on and go and run in Beijing. I can go and run in Shanghai. I can run in New York City. Um, so, you know, the fact that there's no gym in the hotel doesn't mean I don't have the opportunity to go out and exercise. Uh, it's about being creative with what your goals are and how to achieve them. Um, I am very, very fortunate, and as you well know, to be involved in various projects that I am extremely passionate about. And with that passion comes energy. One of the phrases we use here, Podrick, all the time is, we work with the elite, but we're not elitist. In other words, we're very fortunate to work with people like Podrick Moyles or international athletes, rugby players, golfers, tennis players, soccer players. However, most importantly, it is the person who works in a sales role for a global company that isn't elite. Somebody who works maybe in an engineering role in a company that, again, nobody knows even what role they have and what company they work for. So it's the everyday person that we really enjoy impacting their lives, transforming their lives. What can the everyday performer learn from you, the elite performer? Well, I was an everyday performer as well um, before somebody said I was an elite performer uh, because that's that's what I did every day. I just performed and um if they are coming and looking for a transformation, then they want to be an elite performer, and they will be after that transformation takes place. Um, they obviously have a hunger and a quest to be the best that they can be, to find a new way of doing what they do. To, they have a hunger and a, um, a desire to be better than they currently are. And if they have that, then they will get there because they're seeking out people who can help them. They're seeking out mentors. Um, they're seeking to educate themselves. And um, that was me. That was me. There's an old phrase we use that all of the top 10% of people in the world started off in the bottom 10%. What's your thoughts on that, Mr. Moyles? Uh, well, that was me again. Um, and probably is me in different sectors of my life still. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a new dad, so I'm probably in the bottom 10% of that right now. Um, as I learn to try and be a dad and a better husband, so hopefully someday I'll be in the top 10%. Um, but, you know, uh, for, for me, and even what makes an elite performer is not unbelievable confidence um, and, and desire. It also means that you have to question yourself. You have to um, critique yourself in some ways, and you have to want to be better. And uh, I had the opportunity to hear John Cleese speak and he spoke about that in detail, about leaders in the world, the best leaders in the world always question themselves. They find the answers and they move forward. And in many cases, that, that's what I want to be and that's what I hope to be. And, you know, for, for all those people out there that are looking, for, that's a good thing. That's a really, really positive thing. You're telling me the story of coming across Beijing on a bus 
and having a foam roller and being down in the middle aisle of the bus on the foam roller trying to loosen out your lower back. Can you talk us through that, please? Um, well, yeah, that was kind of the turning point for me. And uh, um, one, the level of talent that was coming into Riverdance was insane, uh, which was great. Uh, but there was a lot of pressure building on me. Um, that I was kind of putting on myself, really. Uh, but I remember that bus journey, six and a half hours, um, and all I did was question myself. Question number one, was I good enough to be here anymore? Uh, number two, did I love being here anymore? Um, and I, I remember at, at the end of it, I just kept writing. I was writing down what I was feeling, what I was questioning, some of the answers to those questions. Um, I was fighting with myself in my head. Um, back and forth. Uh, at the end of it, it was about 10 pages I had written um, of stuff that really didn't make a lot of sense um, in some cases, but really what it came down to, Enda, was I loved what I did and I was afraid. And that's really what it was. And from understanding that I was afraid of the talent that was coming up the fact that I was 27 and was I in my prime? Had I reached it? Was I past it? Am I on my way down? Should I get out now so that I am seen as a success rather than failure if I go down? Um, and ultimately what I came to was, yes, I was scared and that's a great challenge. And uh, I took that challenge on. Um, I said to myself, physically, I'm in terrific shape or so the doctors were saying. Um, I felt I could get better. Uh, but my mind was the biggest thing that I could improve. So I did. I started to study sports psychology on the road. I took correspondence courses through universities. Um, and I, I realized that through that, that I, I actually had quite a positive mindset, but that I wasn't, wasn't utilizing it to its fullest, at which point I decided that I wanted to. And I felt that that could be my biggest differentiator between um, me and my competitors, yet teammates. What our listeners won't be aware of is that after that bus journey, me and you met in Bewley's and Grafton Street uh, when you took positive action to improve your mental toughness, your psychology and your mindset. Can you talk us through that particular meeting, please? Um, well, even just before that meeting, Enda, um, I, I have to give some credit to Shami Firon. Uh, we were in Egypt. We were performing in front of the pyramids with Mariah Carey. And um, Shamey was talking to me saying, Paddy, how are you still doing it? Some of the lads would have called me Paddy. And uh, I was telling him that, you know, Shamey, I love it, man. I just, I just want it. I, I, you know, I want to be the best that I can be. Uh, I've started to study more about the mind. And he said, you have to get in touch with Enda McNulty. You have to. So literally, I landed from Egypt, Enda, and I sent you an email. And I sent you that email. I hope we'll go back to you quickly, did I? <laughs> you did, actually. You did. And it was from, from that email then that we met in Bewley's. And um, I, remember, I remember you challenging me. And I really appreciated the challenge. And um, I also remember saying to you, and uh, I don't want to be told that I'm good. I don't want to be told that, you know, th that you're, you're doing great. I just want to be told how I'm going to get better. And uh, on our third meeting, if you remember, again in Bewley's, um, you, you sat down and you said, open your bag. And I opened my bag, and what was in my bag was not good enough. I did not have my bottle of water in there. I did not have my nuts and my seeds. I did not have enough fuel to get me through my day. And I remember you challenging me vigorously over that. And essentially, what I felt was, 
that if you're not serious about this, if you're not going to make the change here and now, then you're not really worth working with. And, and maybe that wasn't what you were trying to say, but that was a huge shift in my mindset in, in, in pushing myself forward because I didn't want to let you down um, because I knew you were giving your time to me. But I, I knew in my heart and soul that I wanted this. I knew I did. And that was a huge game-changing moment for me. A lot of people, Podrick, aren't ready for that challenge. A lot of people, when they're challenged or critiqued vigorously, to go back into their shells. They say, well, who is this guy to challenge me? Or who is this woman to challenge me? So what would you say about your reaction to the challenge? The challenge was easy for me. I asked you questions about your preparation, about your performance rituals, about your strategies, about your overall, let's say, mindset. So that was easy for me to ask those questions. What was most impressive for me was how you responded. You responded vigorously to my questions. You chose to react positively. Well, I suppose the challenge was pressure, right? You, 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 you challenged me, and to me that was pressure. And um, there's that great saying that pressure is a privilege. And I remember playing Gaelic football in New York and my father running onto the pitch. Now, I don't know if this actually made a massive difference in my life, um, but it always stuck in my mind. And we were down by a couple of points. My dad runs on, and I think we were under 14, and he says, this is the pressure moment, and this is where you rise up. Take the game by the scruff of the neck and go and win it. And ever since I felt pressure, I remember opening in Radio City Music Hall, in front of six and a half thousand people with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all these other people in there. And, and that pressure and that, those words resonated in my head. And how did you get into the flow state in Radio City Music Hall, Patrick? Because sometimes with pressure, people are overly hyped. They're overly aroused. How did you decide to get into that unique flow state, also referred to the zone of optimal functioning? Talk us through what your rituals were. Um... What was my rituals? At 6 p.m. I was sitting in a seat in the house of Radio City Music Hall looking at the stage. Um, I sat there, I, I in some sense visualized my own performance on that stage. Um, and it also, doing that in every venue I went to helped my visualization be much, much clearer when I was doing it backstage. So when I was visualizing backstage, I could see the color of the seats, I could see um, the actual, where the lights were, everything was very crystal clear in terms of my visualization. Um, but it, it, I had a great team around me too, Ender, that helped me make sure that I was able to get into that flow state. I don't think I do it on my own. I had a good team around me. If you remember correctly, there was a phone call to you. Um, uh, my wife, who was on the road with me, played a magnificent role in making sure that I was calm, that I was collected, that I was in, a, in the prime position to go out there and be able to deliver. Um, while I was in New York, my whole family were there. That's a great support system. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that pressure. I enjoyed, I went through the exact same rituals as I would in any other venue in the world because that's what my rituals are there for is to allow me to get into that flow state you've mentioned to me before Padraig about meditation and how you use meditation to calm your mind how effective is meditation in your view um it, it's imperative to my performance to being a peak performer uh it's it, it i suppose for me it, it's like not having oil in your car car won't run um, so I, I need to meditate in order for my system to be able to be optimized to a peak performance level 
I remember vividly, Padraig, that first conversation in Beauties, that beautiful summer's day. I remember vividly walking up Grafton Street and preparing myself mentally for the meeting, knowing that I was meeting a world-class performer, not really knowing, you know, what was your mindset going to be like? What was your humility or ego going to be like? And I remember vividly you talking me through all aspects of your preparation. And it was almost in my mind I was doing like a tick and a check across all the positive things you were doing. So I would say 95% of those are positives, but there are also some big work-ons. And the reason that you were so unique was that you went relentlessly after the 5%. In some cases, you were overtraining. In some cases, from memory, Padraig, you weren't resting well enough. In some cases, you weren't identifying you know, with your strengths enough, in other words, building your own confidence. So for the vast majority of people, Padraig, what would you say to them? What advice would you have to them in terms of being relentless in pursuit of changing and improving those work-ons? Uh, well, for me, it was finding people that could help me. I, I would never have gotten there, and this is the God's honest truth, without help. And I wouldn't have gotten there on my own. Um, I had the likes of yourself. I had... Um, physiotherapists, massage therapists. Um, I had proper pillows to help me with the rest that I wasn't getting good enough rest for. So I, I had a full team around me to ensure, I, and I, in many ways, maybe I, I put that team together um, with the assistance of other people too, in order to, to get to that, fi- to, to build on that 5%. That, but even with that ender, I'd still find areas that I could still improve. And I think that again comes from the passion that you have for what you're doing. And honestly, no matter what job you're in in this world, no matter what job it is, we can all go home and say that this is wrong and that's wrong and this is not being run right and that's not running right. Or we can go home and say, this is amazing. You have a choice to look at your job and the things you do in your life in one of two ways. And I could leave Riverdance and tell you all the bad things that there is in Riverdance. But to me, I decide to focus on all the positive things that are in Riverdance. In the very same way as anybody working in Microsoft could come home and tell you about office politics, um, or they could come home and tell you that working with some of the smartest people in the world is inspiring. We all have a choice as to how we look at things. And um, hopefully, for the vast majority of what I do, I decide to look at it in a positive light. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned about Riverdance being one of the most cohesive units in the planet. Talk us through that. Uh, Well, you tell me another team in this world that um, performs to the level of the performers that we have in the same cohesive manner that they perform. If you've seen this show, um, I mean, it it really is. It's something we focus a great amount of time and detail on, is making sure that everybody on that stage is performing the exact same thing at the exact same time uh, and giving them pinpoint feedback as to how we can ensure that we have the most cohesive team in the world. Talk me through pinpoint feedback. What do you mean? Well, for instance, in Riverdance terms, it's where your foot is hitting at the exact beat in the music. Um, I mean, you could do, and it's been recorded at 36 taps per second. So it's breaking those seconds down to an exact tap to the way your foot is shaped, to where your foot is hitting, so that when the audience come in and see this, that everything is in absolute synchrony. Absolute perfection. 
and that is that's the goal and watching um, the team go through that every single day to make sure that that's the goal is inspiring for me and I also think it's a huge challenge for them and, and they accept that challenge they love that challenge just digressing on tapping how much were your feet insured for Podrick during your time as a peak performer <laughs> nothing <laughs> absolutely nothing how come um too humble well, no, I suppose, one, I, I didn't really think that much about it, but in hindsight, if I insured them, maybe complacency would have sat in, you know? <laughs> um, maybe it's a case that uh, I wouldn't have taken as good a care of myself if I had insured them. Um, and it's it, one huge thing in Riverdance is there is no room for complacency. And uh, it, it's one of those things that every night is a, an opportunity to improve. And I think the, the dancers take that in their minds and it gives us great joy as part of the creative team and, and the directors and producers to sit at the back of theatres and watch these guys in the prime of their career going out there trying to be the best they can be on every single occasion. I'm interested in that concept of complacency project because unfortunately I've played on too many teams that were significantly sabotaged by complacency. I've encountered too many businesses around the world who the senior leadership team gets complacent and it has a dramatic impact on the entire organisation. I think all of our listeners are well aware of organisations, whether it's religious organisations, political organisations, business organisations or sporting organisations who get slightly complacent and it becomes deadly. In your new role, Podrick, now as Associate Director in Riverdance, how do you counteract complacency? Well, to me, complacency is a disease and it spreads. And if you don't act when you see it, then it's only a matter of time before it's infected everybody. Um, so for me, what I try to do um, to, to make sure that that doesn't happen is as soon as you see the slightest evidence of it, that you address it. You address it in a very positive way to let them know that, you know, that the performance is not where it needs to be and what the outcome of that, if that continues, is going to be. And that allows everybody to shift their mindset and, and refocus as to how they're approaching their job. And if they really care about it, they're going to make the decision to be proactive in how they address it. And if they don't, if they don't, then the decision is no longer theirs, it's ours. What was the best advice you ever got? Um, I remember a conversation with my mom and dad, and this was close to when I was joining Riverdance. I'd already auditioned. And uh, my dad said, well, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do? And before I even had an opportunity to uh, react or get a word out of my mouth, my mom said, hold on a second. It's not about what you're going to do in your life. It's about who you're going to be in your life. And to me, that was the best piece of advice I was ever given. What would your closing coaching points be for somebody on their journey towards peak performance? Hmm, great question. Um, I think it's that most of us quit just before we get to the finish line. You don't realize how close you are because you, you are never as close to reaching your potential as you are when you quit. You could be literally three inches or three feet away from reaching your goal. So when you decide to actually quit is when you are closest to your goal. So my advice would be don't quit. Keep the quest for knowledge alive. Keep your passion alive. And 
always strive to be the absolute best that you can be. Pudding ways, this has been compelling. The last 10 years has been a hell of a journey, watching you grow, watching you develop, watching you improve. And the most humbling thing has always been, every day you're hungry to learn. I hope our listeners today, Podrick, listening here to Peak Performance, are as inspired by you as I have been over the last 10 years. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much, Podrick. It's been a pleasure.